Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Thank you for tuning in to Around the Coin. Today, I interviewed Toby Russell, the co-CEO of Shift, the platform to make buying and selling cars simple and accessible to everybody. Previously, he was VP of Digital at Capital One, where he led the Consumer Technology Transportation Division. He started in 2007 Taxi Magic, the first on-demand mobile transportation booking technology company prior to Uber being around. He also led $12 billion renewable energy efficiency investment program for the U.S. Department of Energy and has been a project lead for Boston Consulting Group prior to that. He's a doctorate in Oxford and an extensive experience at Shift, taking the company from the early days to IPO, where it's over a 1,000 employees. And we talked about the challenges, how he structured the company, managed the company, and we talked about the industry at large, some of the regulation on automotive transportation, the different entry points with selling from OEMs to individuals, consumers. We talked about uh, the training of cars and automotive and inflation and world economic impacts. We covered a lot of ground. So I hope you enjoy this conversation and please like and subscribe and share the show if you did. The show today is sponsored by Otter Labs. At HireOtter.com, you can check out a community of over 1,300 software developers located down in South America. If you are running a tech startup and you're looking to hire people on your remote engineering team, Otter Labs is a great option. So there are folks down there that speak fluent English that have experience working with startups, very tech savvy. It's a great education system down in Argentina and Uruguay and other surrounding countries. So consider Otter Labs if you're looking to hire engineers. And with that, I bring you Toby Russell. All right, Toby, I'm uh, excited to dive in with you. You've got a lot going on in life and in business. Um, why, don't we, uh, why, why don't we actually kick us off with what we were talking about pre-show uh, so you and I are, are swapping, moving, you're moving to the East coast. I'm moving to the West coast, just moved out here. When I landed, uh, the first, one of the first things I did was go on to shift and buy a car. So I was living in LA a couple of years ago, sold it a great experience. And, you know, I could tell that when you guys started this company, it was build it, build it completely from the ground up with how it, how it should be as opposed to remixing some used car experience, which, you know, being in tech, I, I definitely appreciate. So, uh, yeah, awesome, awesome experience. Congrats on all the progress. Um, what was the uh, founding story? What did you, are you doing exactly shift doing now exactly what you set out to do when you started the company? It's a great question. So, um, my co-founder, George Arison and I had done a previous company. We called it taxi magic. And the idea is you could like push a button and get a car to come pick you up. We were building job apps for Blackberries in 2007. So it was a full two years before Uber. Be happy to tell you that story at some point. But after, after we did uh, Text Magic, decided, hey, we wanna think about doing the next thing. And each of us had had really bad experiences in the auto buying and lending borrowing space. Um, one, one example, I actually took my car to sell it back to a dealer from whom I'd bought it. And they did this whole thing around like, well, hey, we're not sure if your car is a good car. So we're going to give you, you know, $13,000 for it. And I'm like, whoa, I bought this thing from you like a couple of years ago for like $25,000. And I'm looking on your website and it says you're going to sell it for $19,000. And the guy literally said to me, he's like, well, we don't know if that's going to be the case. 
And I was like, no, I'm pretty sure my car, this is like a, a three series BMW, like super standard vehicle. Um, and you know, it was a big stretch for me to be able to afford that thing. And it was at, at the time. And so, um, I look on the website, I'm like, I'm seeing like a hundred of these and <laughs> they're all listed between like 18,000 and like 20. It's like, this thing's going to clear at 19. He's like, well, we can't, we can't be certain. I said, tell you what, why don't we do this? Why don't you guarantee me the 13,000? And then if it sells for more, we'll split the difference. Like if you're not sure. And they go, well, you don't do that. And I said, okay, well, we will. And that was the beginning of the, the shift consignment model. We originally started the company with the idea that as a seller, you'd put your, put your car online with shift. Uh, we'd guarantee you a certain price and then split the difference. Now, over time, we evolved that to where we would just pay people cash up front. And the reason was we discovered about 80% of folks want to get money right up front so they can go buy the next car. Um, yeah. and don't want to like do the consignment thing, but the original, the original, the origins of it was saying, wow, this is a huge, big purchase. It's really important. And it is a terrible experience. Technology really hasn't touched this space at all. And we think that it could be tremendously better by bringing technology, um, and fairness to transparency to a, a space that kind of is living in, you know, 30 years ago in terms of retail. Uh, and yeah. that, that has worked out. Uh, it worked out well in the taxi space. When we first got into that, people were like, whoa, what are you doing? Like taxi operator? Like that's, you know, it's kind of a reviled space. Um, same thing getting into in the used auto. Like, you want to be a used car salesman? Like, oh, that's like a reviled space. Uh, turns out bring technology and transform the experience. Reviled goes to great because it's things people need. What was the, uh, I'm, I want to touch on the shift story, but the, the taxi magic story. So this is 2007, eight timeframe that we're talking about. You is the concept back then very similar to Uber, but enabling the existing fleet of taxis as opposed to a new fleet of say black cars and independence. Yeah, that was the deal, Mike. So at that time I got my first job out of, uh, out of school was working as a consultant for uh, this company called Boston consulting group, traveling all around the country. Uh, George was doing the same thing. He was a BCG. Um, so the two of us traveling all around the country and we're like, wow, it is really hard, especially when you live in New York, you don't own a car. So you're not used to like landing, renting a car and this kind of thing. Um, I thought it would be amazing if you could like fly to a city, push a button on your, at the time, Blackberry, uh, be able to have a car come pick you up, get to where you needed to be. And then at the we were thinking this was for the business traveler originally, uh, have all of that paid for with a credit card. Cause I don't know if you remember Mike, but in the early two thousands, Paying for a taxi with a credit card was almost impossible. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it was like and very slow. This was yeah. it was a nightmare. Yeah. And most taxi drivers would be like, "No, I don't want any part of that. Just give me cash," kind of thing. It was a real it was a real drag in terms of uh, on demand ground travel. And so our, our our thought was for the business traveler to start, and then for everyone later when the iPhone uh, came out, we 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 built out a, a freemium offering known as Taxi Magic. We would plug into uh, taxi operators that had consumer, con computer dispatch systems. Uh, be able to book the reservation and then complete the transaction electronically. We did the whole thing, like show the car coming to you. People love that, like being able to get text updates and seeing the car coming to you. And I know this all sounds like very simple and obvious. I, I jokingly say it's like we were building, you know, you know, the Netscape of the Uber space because now we all, we take this all for granted, you know, whatever that is like 10 years later. But um, at the time, it was uh, a, kind of a, a big deal to be able to push a button, get a car to come to you. We were, we were the, I literally took the first ride ever in a car booked off of a mobile device um, <laughs> when we prototyped the concept uh, before that, that, uh, that existed. And this was, this was, you know, uh, a long time ago. Any rate, the, the net of it was uh, we did plug in to the existing taxi system. Uh, and you mentioned earlier, Hey, we built shift very much from like much more vertically integrated. That is we would control every part of the user experience. Uh, and the reason is this, when doing taxi magic, I uh, discovered that periodically what would happen is we would book the, the, the taxi, uh, the taxi would be on the way and the users love that, particularly in places like San Francisco, people are like, wow, you know, I, I want to get a taxi of which there are three. And I, I kind of, I kind of want to jump the queue and be able to like get, get that thing ordered. It was great. But that taxi driver was a licensed medallion taxi driver. So they could pick people up off the street. So they'd be on the way to the, to the, to the passenger, to the taxi magic user. And they'd see somebody on the street with luggage. What did luggage mean? Oh, it means an airport ride. Oh, that's a good ride. I'm going to take that. So they would they would basically um, renege on the taxi magic ride, pick up the person with luggage, and then go out. And it was like a rebooking thing. It was kind of a mess. You're seeing that more with Uber and Lyft now. But the the net of it is that we would get blamed. So they'd be like, "Hey, that was bad taxi magic." We're like, "Hey, we booked it with you know whatever LA Yellow Cab." Um, you know, it's it's kind of like you don't blame Expedia if United does uh, a late a late flight. But in this case, we realized, hey, actually, that user experience and be able to control the user experience all the way through is critical 
Because when we outsource the key part of the user experience, reliability of the te- of the car uh, coming to get you, that cre- it really it really destroyed the value part. I, as I as I joke, like no taxi, no magic, completely destroyed the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And so um, what we realized was, hey, in doing the next thing, we didn't want to do just like a listing site for selling cars. That wasn't going to solve it. Like send somebody to their traditional dealer. We had to we had to, as you mentioned earlier, fundamentally reinvent the thing from the ground up. Um, and so we did a differentiated approach at Shift to sourcing cars. We get them from consumers because those are the best cars in nature. Can talk about that. There's a bunch of there's a bunch of goodness when you buy a, a car directly from a consumer and take it directly to a consumer. Um, and that's the vast majority of the cars that we do. And the idea was to have a an exchange uh, from people to people, and, and in a lot of ways, cut out the middleman using technology to make it uh, clear, fair, and straightforward in a way that uh, I felt my experience was not when when I was touching that industry uh, before jumping into it. Yeah, I'm sure you learned a lot of taxi magic, but going into shift, I mean, one question that just jumps out to me is uh, there's a lot of it's a big space and the transaction aspect of of cars is the most obvious space to enter. Was there a a structural reason, a regulatory reason or some cultural reason as to why this wasn't solved in a big way prior to? So um, I think there's a legacy uh, cultural reason in the industry that involved both the business model and the technology of the day being pretty pretty tightly entwined. So two things were happening. The model was very much, and, and, and most, most of the time it still is today, this is amazing, very much an old style mom-pop shop retail model. And uh, in the in the in the old days, it was very much with zero pricing transparency. You know, there's a degree to which every used car is a slightly unique asset, um, and and to some degree, that's true of new cars as well, like different features, options, etc. And so, what the industry grew up around was this idea that the user didn't know what the value of the car was, and while the um, dealer had a pretty good idea their objective was to maximize the price they get from that user. So you get this like, what I would describe as a completely bizarre and Byzantine negotiation model. And so you'd go in and this is, this is it's, like, it's like a known thing. I'm going to go in and I'm going to haggle with a used car dealer. To me, in, you know, the, <laughs> in like 2020, that's crazy. <laughs> like yeah, the, the, yeah, the, yeah. We're having you walk in and you, I mean, would you go and like negotiate for your computer at Apple? Like you would not. <laughs> would you walk in and negotiate for a washing machine at Best Buy? I mean, like, I guess, but not really. Like you don't, you don't, you don't go and like negotiate for your cereal. We just, we don't do that. And partially, and this is why, why we don't is um, it's actually literally discriminatory. Not just statistically speaking, like if you're new to the country, new to car buying, um, uh, dare I say, a woman or a minority, statistically speaking, you will do worse. And But the whole system is designed around, hey, uh, how might that dealer take advantage of an information asymmetry and use that to get more from the, from the buyer? I look at that just at its very core, and I'm like, that is a terrible system. Now, if your business model and the industry business model was built around that, is set up around a negotiation tactic to be able to make your prices and your buying and your economics go around, it's actually really hard to bring that into the internet because it's almost impossible. I'm not impossible, but like it's very hard to do that kind of negotiation pressure tactic play online. And that's part of why we thought, hey, <laughs> a no haggle price, algorithmically calculated, you can trust it. Uh, it is what it is in an online fashion where you can go and check it and look at look, look across a lot of different areas and see so that you can compare the data for yourself makes a ton of sense and is going to be transformational. Now, the legacy industry just wasn't built for it, wasn't incentivized to do it. And so in many cases, when you have an industry that has a business model and lack of technology, it gets locked into a certain model, but um, you bring technology and a whole new interaction model and you can pretty fundamentally change it, which yeah. is uh, what happened in the taxi space. And um, we're, we're, what we're seeing happening in auto retail. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, there's no surprise to me at all that the existing incumbents wouldn't improve on their model. I, I'm more surprised that there wasn't like, you know, cars.com or some auto trader or I don't, I don't, I forget what the big players in the space are, but these guys, it seems like this is the obvious move. And I'm sure even at the time there was a, a decent percentage of market share going through online exchanges, but it, it seems to me like the, the, the key aspect is the delivery and the focus on just easy transaction. Whereas most of the others, see, correct me if I'm wrong, but they seem to be focused on, 
just volume of people listing their cars and then you meet up in person, you know, pretty for the, for the most part, you're doing the work of exchanging the car. I mean, the inventory is great on shift, but it's like, there's other inventory in other places that the, the bring it to me and make it easy is like, like, I don't think that people quite appreciated how important that is. Even though it's a big purchase, it's still, I don't want to drive 40 minutes. I don't want to spend another hour in the DMV that I don't have to. And, uh, I don't know. Do you, do you realize now in hindsight that that ended up being really significant compared to the other like tech focused companies? Um, absolutely. So what what the 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 other companies that you're describing, you know, the the car gurus, auto traders, cars dot com, uh, great, really positive things. But at its core, really, what those are listing sites for dealers. Yeah, so they're essentially exactly. taking the classified ads in the newspaper and bringing them onto an internet interface. But you can't actually buy a car from car gurus. <laughs> they're going to they're gonna hand you off to a dealer. And as our experience with Taxi Magic was, yeah, we could we could actually even book you a reservation with that taxi. But then you're you're kind of at the at the mercy of that taxi operator. And with car gurus, they'll tell you, hey, yeah, you can go you can go over to that dealer and find that car. But you're at the mercy of that dealer. My experience coming into the industry was the problem was the dealers. It's the used mm-hmm. car salesmen that are the problem. And so the the key. Uh, for, that we saw was not just to be able to show you the car, but actually be able to fulfill. Uh, as, as Jerry Seinfeld once said, anybody can take a reservation. You know, at, at, at the, he was talking about that uh, he went to a, an auto uh, rental company. Might, I don't know if you remember this this episode, Mike. But he, he walks into the auto rental company. He says, "Hey, have a reservation. Uh, I, I expect you to have me a car." And she's like, "I don't, I don't have your car." He's like, "I did see this." <laughs> you remember this? She's like, "I have your reservation, but I don't. We don't have a car." He's like, "Well, but that's the whole thing." Anybody can take a reservation, take, 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 take. It's holding the reservation. That's what's hard. And in auto retail, that's the same story. Anybody can list the car. List, 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 list. What's hard is delivering the car, <laughs> like yeah. selling the car, actually fulfilling on that user experience. And that's what I mentioned earlier in the, the, the learning from the Taxi Magic experience was making sure that we could guarantee an end-to-end, online to offline, uh, both browse and, browse and search, but also um, get, fulfill, and buy the car experience. And that is the true differentiator, uh, that, that, that ability uh, to do that. In many ways, that was really the Amazon uh, e-commerce revolution, if you think about it. You know, anybody could kind of list stuff online and you'd hope that maybe they'd get it to you or they'd list stuff online. You'd be like, come to my store and see it. You know, like a lot of, a lot of the early e-commerce was really just marketing to traffic drive to stores. Mm-hmm. And what Amazon said is, hey, actually, this is a different thing. It's not just about telling you, hey, I have the thing come to my store. It's about being able to create a differentiated fulfillment experience. You can see the thing, you can experience the thing, you can buy the thing, and you can trust that, that journey. Uh, that's what we wanted to create and, and have worked hard to, to do with Shift. Yeah. yeah, it's amazing how impactful trust is to the, to the business economics, but how difficult it is and how underappreciated it is from the consumer standpoint. Like being on the founder side of, of businesses for many years is... It's like unbelievably hard to build an incredibly simple experience, which, you know, is the nature of the game. Um, do, you, do you feel like throughout the experience, say, coming into this, uh, you know, from a fairly, uh, you know, really you have had no used car sales background, which I think is a strength. Did you feel like the regulation, state or federal, if there are any, were major uh, hindrances? I mean, would, would, would you be able to do things differently if there were less regulations in place? Or I'm curious wh- where we are now in terms of auto regulation, if it's properly calibrated. Great, great question. I'd say the biggest, the most fundamental regulation is, um, and, and this this didn't bother shift because our core, our core concept was buying from users to users. Those are the best cars and where you're going to get the best value. The biggest regulation in the industry is it's preventing new car dealers from selling or new car automotive manufacturers selling directly to consumer. So the, the real regulatory kind of grill in the room. I'm sure you've heard about this with Tesla trying to sell cars uh, direct in Texas and having lots of challenges in the, in, you know, years ago is the idea that um, someone who makes a thing can't sell it to a consumer directly. They have to go through what they call a franchise dealer. So the franchise dealer laws are probably the most um, intense and, and uh, structured. What you see is more innovation happening in the used car space. Uh, you know, th- whatever, 30 years ago, CarMax came in and said, Hey, we're going to, we're going to start like basically go from a mom and pop retail concept to apply big box. If you think about it, it was like CarMax was like, let's take Circuit City, Best Buy, Kmart philosophy and apply it to auto retail. That's really what at the core, the, the founding of that thing was. And um, that big box 
application back then went toward used cars because used is a, is a little bit more latitude from a regulatory point of view. That said, you do have to get licensed state by state. Um, and that, that, that is a challenge. And particularly when you're um, looking to sell cross state lines as you grow in volume, uh, it gets tricky. Like we shipped to sold cars uh, all across the country. I think in all but like four states because you can you know just push a button buy the car online and so mm. the concept of state boundaries uh, breaks down. That's a journey that that e-commerce has gone through you know writ large. Amazon state state um, uh, sales tax questions etc. Yeah. Over the years uh, and that'll get ironed out. But the big thing is the selling of new cars. That's kind of that's kind of a, uh, a, a low on innovation space at this moment as a result of a regulatory framework. How is that not? you know, just immediately or very quickly change. I mean, who is on the other side of this other than the used car dealers? It's like who, no, clearly the manufacturers and the consumers aren't incentivized to have this forced middleman. It just seems, it feels incredibly, I don't know if it's unconstitutional or un-American to block free trade. I mean, to say that you have to go through this middleman, it's not, what is, what, is there any, is there any, if you're put on your devil's advocate, is yeah. there a side to this that makes sense? Um, many things that we have, uh, in, in, in our society are the result of legacy forces that were very real. What do I mean? Um, I mean, if, if you think about the, um, whatever, decades ago, uh, the OEMs, let's say, for example, sitting in Detroit, manufacture a car, ship it to, you know, South Louisiana. I'm making that up. Um, very hard for them to support that vehicle. What does it mean? Post-sale support, pretty difficult. They can't, they, they don't have a network of mechanics that can support the thing. Quote, back then, the cars were relatively unreliable. Um, the, you know, the, the American cars in the 1950s and 60s weren't known for being like, hey, this thing's going to last 20 years. And they were known for like, it's, it could break down. It could be a real problem. In fact, Japanese automakers really entered the space in particular. Toyota, Honda really made a lot of progress by saying, hey, we're going to produce a product that doesn't require a lot of maintenance, that isn't going to be, isn't going to break down, is going to have tremendous longevity. They built entire brands around that um, because there was a concern around maintenance. I think, and I'm speculating here, Mike, mm -hmm. I think the philosophy was, hey, we're going to uh, legislate that you have to have a local presence that can both sell the thing, but then stand behind it, that can service it and, and help help make sure that thing doesn't break out on you and you just can't get a hold of the of the manufacturer who's off somewhere in Detroit because um, you know back in the day the distance between a place like Louisiana or, or, or Florida and Detroit was like you know the equivalent of going to um, the Middle East or whatever you know like that that's a, that's a long there weren't there weren't not not a lot of shipping infrastructure difficult supply lines telecom was weak you name it whatever uh, so the point is I said hey you got to have somebody local there that can support stand behind it and represent the brand. Uh, there locally. Fast forward, you know, half a century, uh, you've got folks like Tesla saying, hey, I can go online and I can ship direct to consumer and I can support that thing end to end. By the way, electric vehicles, much less complicated in the case of, um, I mean, this is like, we literally have this phrase, how many moving parts does it have? And the reason mm -hmm. is because moving parts are complicated. An internal combustion engine has a ton of moving parts. An electric motor has a lot less, much more simple, much more simple, um, uh, machine. And so the ability to sell direct to consumer and to support and stand behind it arguably is categorically different uh, today than it was half a century ago for a bunch of reasons. The, the, the internet uh, reputation brand, as well as just direct to consumer selling of a thing that is, that is in a lot of ways, a lot less complex. Yeah. So I think that we're, we will see change on that. Um, and that, that will, that will change and evolve over time. But that kind of change, like you said earlier, um, the incumbents don't have an interest in it and it, it goes slowly. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have any idea how many states uh, put that blocker in place or still have that regulation? I, I know it's outside of your. Um, so it, 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 it's, uh, the, there's a reason I don't sell new cars. Um, and that's actually <laughs> not because of the regulation. Uh, the reason I don't sell new cars, we have a saying at Shift: friends don't let friends buy new cars. Uh, we even put together a TV ad. Uh, Martin Starr was our spokesman over the past year. And he'd say, basically, when you buy a new car over the first three or four years, it loses half of its value. Uh, I look at that and I'm like, that's crazy. <laughs> the idea that I would buy a thing and the second I drive it off the lot, it would lose thousands, like two to $3,000 because it goes from new to used. And then over the ensuing like 36 months, it would be worth half of what I paid for it. Um, when, it, when I'm spending tens of thousands of dollars, I'm like, that is crazy. And that's part of why we were really keen 
to do uh, enable people to buy cars from from people to people because the reusability and sustainability of that is tremendous. But in addition, the economics are just amazing. <laughs> mm. If you buy a car that's three to four years old as opposed to like brand new, uh, you are going to pay potentially half of what you would have paid for the same thing brand new. But the cars last longer and longer. You're talking about a vehicle that's going to last you 10, 15 years. So give up three or four years of it being brand new, pay half. That's a great deal. So the regulatory thing is less why we wouldn't sell new cars and more because we're really in the business of trying to help people get a great, great experience. Um, we, our, 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 the tagline, uh, used cars never felt so new. <laughs> we're creating a, a great experience, but also a, um, a, a trusted quality experience with a thing that is incredible value. So, so, so setting aside the, um, the, the regulatory thing, that's why I think the used car space is actually from a sustainability and value from, for consumer, way more interesting and great place, uh, to be, to be both innovating and scaling. But, um, on the new thing, um, I actually don't know state by state, which ones uh, are all better than others. You know, there's like, uh, there's, there's a bunch of, bunch of stories of some states being much more aggressive than others. I'm not going to call out any individual states um, on that one. But um, I, I, it is done literally state by state. So each state legislature and the lobbying forces of the franchise dealers and the interactions at the state level are, are what are at play there. Mm-hmm. So it, it, as, as you alluded, there is a major difference in some states versus others. But I'm not, yeah. not going to call out individual states or anything like that. Well, we can we can definitely put some states on blast. I just moved to Oregon and uh, Oregon's great, but man, you still have to have a person at the gas station pump your car. By law, you can't even pump your own gas, which I I, 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 I didn't know about this. So I land here, get a car, go to the gas station and the guy comes up and I'm, I'm like a little, you know, standoffish as to what he's doing. He just grabs it and shoves it in my tank. I'm like, what's going on here? And uh, Google, Googling it, there's only two states, New Jersey and Oregon, that have this law in place. And like you say, it's not, I mean, the beauty of the United States is that there are 50 different um, structures of, of, of laws, which I think is a, a strength in its um, elasticity and its ability to not, you know, if you're going to make a mistake or go too fast or too so, slow on some law, well, you're going to be able to see. You know, I think even just the comparison today between how different states handle COVID and how different states handle um, big law, uh, law, not lawsuits, but uh, regulatory decisions, you can see that kind of play out. And I think that that's that's a huge strength. I mean, you know, needless yeah. to say, that's a, a big part of what the United States is about. So, yeah, I, I see that that being true. Do you, do you feel like even though we're in a, a place now where an inflation of cars, probably used cars has gone up, I, the number I heard was 30%. Do you feel like if you bought a, a new car, there must be a point if you bought a new car a year ago. So in say the beginning of 2020, maybe it's worth more than it was when you bought it. I, this is probably an anomaly of the times, but, uh, I, 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 I want to ask you on this. Um, do you feel that Certainly, there are economic effects, macro economic effects on people moving. And now I'm sure there's a surge of used cars and people buying cars. Uh, do you feel like we're at a like an inflationary period that'll cool off, both in terms of used cars and maybe more broadly? Or do you have any thoughts on inflation and the prices, the pricing index? I sure do, Mike. It's a great point. Um, so what's driving at its core this crazy anomalous situation where all cars are actually appreciating uh, probably new cars a little bit less like you buy it, it drive it off a lot new car goes down then it kind of starts to reappreciate a little bit um th- what's happening there is because there's uh, shortages in the supply chain uh, particularly of computer chips that isn't allowing the new car manufacturers to produce cars um i mean we even heard apple talk about shortages of chips causing iphone 13 production targets to, to be, to be lowered. Like, and if you're, if you're Apple and you can't get chips, you can better believe that if you're an auto manufacturer, you can't get chips. And so what, what we're seeing is, um, structural COVID COVID related, but also technology, um, generation related, uh, shortages in chips for automakers. That means not the new cars aren't coming out to market. And so we're seeing a couple of things happen. One, customers who would have wanted to go and buy a new car paying way higher prices. So the idea of like friends don't let friends buy new cars is even more true now. When there's a shortage of a thing, the price goes up and it depreciates right away, right when you buy it. Like that's a, that's like the worst of the, of, of all worlds. 
But um, what we're also seeing is the rental companies, which got started, you know, the, the Avises and Hertz of the world, they grew up around the idea of buying bulk vehicle orders from manufacturers, brand new cars, running those as rental um, vehicles for a while, and then selling those off at auction into the, into the used vehicle market. When COVID hit, those, those huge companies with you know, tens of thousands of vehicles, hundreds of thousands of vehicles in, in supply began defleeting those because they're like, wow, nobody's traveling, nobody's renting cars. So we got to get out of all these assets that are going to just depreciate. So they began selling those off like crazy. Then COVID turned and everybody's like, actually, I'm going to travel again. <laughs> and mm. There's a vaccine and we've, we've found out protocols. We're not as worried. So travel picked up significantly. People would, you know, not necessarily go to like large hotels and convention centers, but they go on like Airbnb where you're like, hey, I can rent an individual, uh, an individual house, but still would need a car to get around when they'd get there. Uh, you know, they were nervous about public transit for really good reason. Uh, don't want to be like in- encapsulated in a, uh, in a train underground with a lot of other people during the COVID timeframe. And even rideshare took a big hit. Like don't want to be in, in a car with a stranger who's been in a car with a lot of other people. It's something like, so I'm going to rent a car. I'm going to do like an Airbnb. It became sort of the individual do that thing. <clears throat> so the rental companies started buying cars from the auctions. That's crazy. Normally they're supplying mm. uh, auctions and the auctions then supply the dealers. They're instead pulling supply out of the used car industry whilst not putting new supply into it. So you see these huge spikes in price of used cars at auction. That is largely what then in turn is driving the, uh, the, the increase in used car prices because the dealers are going to auctions, looking to buy cars, and they're having to pay incredible premiums at auction to then sell those, sell those cars out. Uh, Shift was less affected because we were buying from consumer to consumer. So the auctions go up and down, but we're, we're really about the, the consumers and helping people exchange cars. But that still causes a rise in all of the prices of all cars throughout the industry because there's a structural shortage that's being accentuated by the retail or by the rental companies actually sucking supply out of the system. Do, do you feel like the uh, the rental car companies miscalibrated this? I mean, I'm sure that they did the best of the information they had, uh, but they they drastically underestimated the rebound in um, travel. Hindsight is twenty twenty. So I, I, I know I'm never one to want to like Monday morning quarterback somebody else. <laughs> So I was like, it's like, did, did, you know, um, in, in, in practice, um, sure. Like look at hindsight, knowing when COVID would end, it's like, yeah, everybody, everybody probably, uh, across the board, we all probably thought it was going to be, um, much worse than it, than it was. And then it changed quickly and then it changed back. So in any situation where you have uncertainty, uh, you're going to have miscalculation. That's almost almost by definition, because you can't possibly know the future perfectly. So, you know, in, in retrospect, uh, given where used car prices are today, would fleets of all sorts, rental car companies and you name it, yeah. who had inventory have done better hanging on to that stuff? Uh, yeah. <laughs> when, when an asset <laughs> yeah. depreciates, appreciates by 30 to 50% over, over six to eight months. I mean, think about how many investments do you make that appreciate in like 30 to 50% in six to eight months? Like, yeah, not, not a lot. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, so, so anybody who was holding on to cars in, in late 2021, or excuse me, late 2020, um, uh, that could have held on to them and, and kept them into 2021 when that appreciation really took off. Uh, yeah, I think they'd look back and be like, I probably should have held on to those more and, and, and not, not deflated. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, that's like, you can't know. Um, and yeah. so uh, like Hertz declared bankruptcy. They were under real pressure because they had uh, huge cash flow problems. Like they're sitting on a massive fleet that fleet is financed. Their revenues are dropping. These are companies that aren't built to be loss-sustaining companies. They're, they're long-time public companies that are designed around quarterly earnings, not quarterly losses. And so it was um, a, a real harrowing time for a lot of companies. And did those companies like Hertz, for instance, receive money from the government in any kind of stimulus package in the way I think the airlines did, right, to keep them afloat? Is that how they made it through? Or um, I don't know the ins and I, I know there was a lot of talk of like uh, debt deals and financing. I don't know what the government involvement was specifically as relates to Hertz or the rental companies. Yeah. That's a good question though, Mike. Yeah. In hindsight, it's kind of amazing that they they did survive as well as they did. I've been doing some traveling recently. It's like, you know, it's, it's hard to see what changed other than just maybe inflation, but you know, you're not seeing a, a giant vacancy in the number of cars available or the number of rental car companies that are out there. Um, you know, 
to some degree it's affected, but yeah, I, whatever happened on behind the scenes, uh, you know, I do give them some credit for that. The debt dealers and the, the financiers. Yeah. Well, and rental prices are up significantly. It is much more expensive to rent a car these days than it was before, <clears throat> which is not surprising given that it's mm-hmm. much more expensive to buy a car, uh, ultimately because of the supply shortages. I, I do think, and you asked the question earlier, when is that going to correct? So the question is, does that, does that turn around quick? Um, I think what we're going to see, I, this is just me crystal ball again, sure, hindsight sure. 2020. And, um, you know, I, I think Miles Bohr once said, predictions are very difficult, especially when they're about the future. And so what I think uh, I would say is, uh, I actually think that the, the aggressive inf- um, inflation on vehicles, the, the, the price increases are over. I think we'll see continued some, some inflation, but it's going to start to level off. But I don't think we're going to see a drop fast. And the reason is the chip shortages, I think, have a series of drivers, not just the the supply constraints, but also there's a technology wave that is happening in the chips. And that is chip makers constantly have to think about investing in new new factories, new fabs. It's a very capital intensive uh, activity to invest in new capacity. As they invest in new capacity, one, they were thinking, wow, there's a lot less demand. Two, they were thinking, I'm actually going to invest in new technology, not old. Automakers, by and large, use older chipsets rather than new ones. New chipsets in the iPhone, old chipsets in your sedan. That's just kind of how it works out. Uh, and part of the reason is the life cycle of uh, the product life cycle of a car is much longer than the, your standard consumer electronic or a cell phone. And so the, 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 the testing and the security and the, I should say, the safety implications are huge. Uh, and so the older, more reliable, more known chipsets tend to make their ways into automotive um, vehicles. The chip makers are not keen to invest in old chipset fabs. <laughs> They're yeah, not like, hey, let, yeah. me go, let me go build two and three generations of technology earlier. And so what you're seeing is they're, where they're building and the, 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 the investment was less due to COVID. There was, a, there was like a structural gap in those chips. Where the investment then is happening is on the newer chips, which are harder for the automakers to use. So there's a lot of product rethinking going on uh, by the automakers because there's a, at least two of those factors, uh, the lack of total investment that happened causing a gap and the focus on newer chips rather than old is making life real hard for the automakers. And that is not like, it's not like all automakers just buy the same chips. We're talking about different chips of different sorts and multiple chips per every single vehicle. Every make model combination has different requirements. And so it's a very sensitive system, hmm. meaning it isn't just turn around overnight. Yeah. Like that's going to take a long time. And, you know, certain, certain models are going to come back. Uh, certain makers are going to do better than others. And so I think we're going to see an uneven recovery rather than the call it like retail recovery we saw with COVID. Like, hey, nobody's going to retail. Actually, now they are. You know, it was like it was like it just it just switches and retail can kind of retail broadly understood can kind of come back. It, it, that's not how this thing is going to work. So I think we're going to see a slow piecemeal recovery of the supply in cars uh, coming into the ecosystem. So we'll continue seeing um, shortages in ride share, in uh, rental cars, in places like Toro and get around car share and, uh, and across the board throughout the ecosystem. Yeah. Yeah. And I've heard that most of the chips, uh, correct me if I'm wrong or if, or if you know this, but I believe they're, they're manufactured in Taiwan and maybe assembled in China, but they're for the most part outside the U.S., um, which, you know, it, it kind of highlights um, a manufacturing gap there or vulnerability. If you're, you know, say you're you actually have economic tensions rising and they put a ban on chips, it's almost everything we care about runs on computer chips, everything that's significant and contributes to our you know, way of life in a meaningful way. Product-wise, you know, cell phones, consumer goods, cars, you know, the whole internet of things, everything has a chip in it. Uh, people probably will soon. Uh, do, do you feel like that's um, going to become a initiative, uh, maybe an opportunity for manufacturing of chips to come to the U.S.? Or do you have any... I think it's a it's an incredibly good call out because what what you're pointing to, Mike, is hey, we as a global community just went through and are continuing to go through massive supply chain disruption, and we built up we built up a pretty efficient supply chain model, as as you mentioned, uh, particularly from a U.S. centric point of view, heavy heavy supply chain dependence on East Asia, China in particular, to a degree Taiwan. Uh, and that was pretty deeply disrupted very quickly. 
with the with the eruption of COVID in China in particular. Uh, and I think that that's got a lot of folks in ship making, uh, but also in, in, across the board, thinking, hey, uh, just because a thing is economically more efficient in the short run doesn't mean it has a long-term sustainability. And that actual practical experience of deep disruption of a supply chain, um, I think is going to cause a lot of rethinking around uh, business continuity as relates to the supply chain and make domestic manufacturing, at least in some portion for the U.S., look a lot more attractive, not just because it's been coming back from an economic point of view and getting better, but also from a strategic, hey, we probably want to be not single-threaded on buying from any one country, insert China, um, uh, for for huge amounts of um, supply on most things, because even a country like China that has done a lot of work on building out a, a tremendous manufacturing capability can come offline from something like COVID. We just learned that in the like, uh, oh, wow, that's a big deal kind of way. Mm. And I, I think, um, you know, the internet taught us that a distributed infrastructure is much more reliable and uh, supply chain in a distributed fashion, even if slightly less, less efficient in the short run, is probably a more resilient, reliant structure. And I think that there's a lot to be learned there um, through this experience. Yeah. Yeah, resilience is the key word. It, it, it does feel like... Uh, we are in the age of resilience, anticipating, you know, just coming out of COVID. Um, yeah, I can certainly see manufacturing making a big comeback in the U.S., not in the old way of people on a construction line, but in the way of computer science and engineering, building, manufacturing plants that that build products, especially with the, you know, effectively all country borders just dissolving with the remote work. It's like people are hiring people from all over the world. So, you know, there's pros and cons to everything. I don't know if you you could you could label it as good and bad, but the the salary are like uh, you know they're they're leveling out. The engineering salary for somebody down in South America used to be maybe twenty percent of what it is today, and now it's it's much more approaching U.S. rates. And there's always some premium that it's just like driving a, a used car or a new car off the lot or buying a TV. As soon as you drive it off or take it out of the store you you lose the it, it's not as if the product loses value in its objective sense but that you uh, no longer have that trust factor and i think there's there's a strong trust factor of making products in the us as opposed to buying them outside because our laws and intervention ways work you know you can go in and inspect a factory much easier here than you could in other places so I find all this super interesting to think about because it's it's hard to assess from the sidelines. You know, unless you're talking to somebody who's in the business or working on it, you can't just look at prices and figure it out. You can't see how, you know, it's it's difficult to see the trends in 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 the direction of things going, but they're so impactful to the entire world, you know, where where things are made and how they're sold, how they're transported. Um I want to shift gears a little bit and, and ask you something, uh, unless you wanted to add, add in anything at the end of that. What I, um, if you think about what you're just describing there, there is a fascinating trend that COVID sparked. That would be, think about the concept of diversification and or onshoring of manufacturing, which basically had been moving out of the U.S. But at the same time, offshoring or outsourcing or distributing, really, of office work. So engineer, software engineering, even design, um, clerical, accounting, you know, you name it. We're seeing that be able to be distributed in a way that we had never observed before. Everybody's like, got to be in the office, got to be working together. Uh, at, you know, in, in, our, in our case at Shift, we were very much a tech-centric Silicon Valley company. We now have people employed all the way from the very top of North America and Canada down into Latin America, distributed throughout the country. And that happened fast. Yeah. I don't think we were the only ones to do that because we realized if we're all working from home, we can get talent from everywhere, at least for the, the corporate office. So in an interesting way, I think we might be seeing a, uh, a re-leveling of the playing field on a couple dimensions because it used to be you'd offshore manufacturing and in-source office work. I think we're now saying, hey, or onshore and in-office office work. I think we're about to see more distribution in office work and then uh, re-onshoring re of things like manufacturing which is fascinating. And it's, 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 it's the, the equilibrium shifting uh, along the way, which is, I, I think, and all sparked in, in part by the, that, that COVID thing, which is incredible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think about this and I think who loses in the situation? You know, if you're, if you're a company, you benefit because you can hire people from, you can hire greater talent and, and presumably less expensive talent if there are in other places that are 
that are cheaper to live. Uh, so the, co- the companies prefer it. The individuals who live in other parts of the world prefer it because they get better job opportunities, better income. The people who are locally working for that company, say if you're a software engineer living in Palo Alto and all of a sudden the company goes remote, you're probably not winning. You're saying, hey, you know, I'm now competing with someone who lives in South America who's willing to work for t- 25% of what I'm, I'm making. I also think the cities themselves start to lose. Like I think the part, you know, part, people point to San Francisco and look at the crime that's been going on. But I think that that's a downstream function symptom of something else. And, and, I, and I don't think it's just bad political decisions. I think it's a, I, I think COVID in particular hit SF really hard in that when companies can go remote, why, why pay SF prices? And so the, the construct of a city of being, if you think of a city as like an independent organism, it's no longer needed, right? Because we now form collectives online. We're like grouping up in the, on the internet. And so people move out to the suburbs, like suburbs are exploding, small towns are exploding. And for better or for worse, you know, if you're a local business owner in a big city, it's been t- especially tough, you know, incredibly tough. Um, but I don't, I don't see that rebounding in a big way. That seems, you know, I, I, the, down, the downside too is like, there, there's not going to be as prolific art and entertainment as there once was if people aren't as congested in areas. You know, it, like if that truly is a sustaining, sustaining trend that people are moving out from dense populations, you know, like um, performers can't justify the same income they could if they're going to sell out a, you know, 30,000 person stadium or our theater. So I, I don't know, you know, we can't actually affect these things, but I, I do like envisioning ha- having some sense of confidence in what it's going to look like. And, you know, just knowing, hey, maybe we lose some of that. Maybe the art goes from in-person to online. And then who knows, maybe it circles back again. But I think you're, you're onto something really interesting there. And that is um, the, the losers here are um, top tier one, high density city governments. Mm. Um, that won't last forever. But San Francisco, I think, is a great, um, great example of that. It has not weathered this pandemic well. Uh, crime and the challenges on the streets of San Francisco are bad. People are like, why am I going to pay um, San Francisco rent and prices? Even if you're working for that Palo Alto company, folks are like, I'm going to go live with my, my parents in Michigan. I'm going to pay a lot less rent. And oh, by the way, I kind of might have considered living in Michigan near home in the first place. But I, the only place I could work is I had to be in Silicon Valley. I think Silicon Valley, at least in the short run, um, is getting distributed massively. We're seeing folks say like, I'm going to go live in Madison, Wisconsin. I'm going to go live. A lot of people looking at like places like Miami, you name it. Um, and in the short run, that'll be the case. <clears throat> in the medium term, I think we'll see nightlife and social life come back in places like San Francisco. So if you're like a young millennial tech um, uh, employee, you're like, why would I pay San Francisco rent when I can't go out and hang out with my friends anyway? So I'm going to go live with my folks for a while, but eventually I do want to go out and hang out with my friends. Eventually I do want to be able to, to go out and have this, the in-person social life. And so those cities won't be like devastated the way some of your comments might've suggested there might. Yeah. I think there will be a, a pendulum that swings a little bit back. So people are like, okay, it's worth paying the rent again to be, to be socially around folks. And there'll be a bit of a recovery. But I think the seal has broken on, hey, there's a monopoly around being in a certain geography for certain types of work. And the distributed work concept um, I think has existed for years, but now it's finally, it, it hit the tipping point. And I, I think the new culture of being able to be anywhere for most roles, most of the time, and then periodically travel to or convene in certain places is going to be a, an important new normal. Uh, it won't be the case across the board. We'll see the pendulum swing a little bit further back toward in office work, but I don't think we're going to get back to a world where people are working five days a week or seven days a week in an office. Um, yeah. When yeah. you look, we, we did a survey on this and like, Three to five percent of folks want to be in the office every day of the week. Wow! Like, hey, my home it? situation—it's tiny. It's t- it's unbelievable. Are like like there's this tiny group that's like, look, I just like my my, my roommate farts, or like <laughs> I, I've got kids at home that need the space that I just can't do, or I'm you know I've I've got a setup to where I just can't work there, and that's like that makes sense, you know. Um, and then that may change over time as people reconsider housing environment. When I, but a very small group are saying, I have got to be in the office five days a week. Uh, there's another group, a sizable group, like, you know, I mean, think 10, 20% are like, I just literally never want to come back at all. I'm done. Like, I just not going to happen. You, you, if you want me in the office, good luck with that. I'm going to another company. 
And then there's a, there's a big middle that is saying, Hey, I'm up for being there two to three days a week. Like I, I like the connectivity. I like when we get to do, do an, an offsite in the office, <laughs> like mm-hmm. offsites, the, the new offsite is the onsite. Um, I, I'm going to do that thing uh, in the office. I want to interact with my colleagues. I want to get to know them. And we want to do, we want to do some brainstorming, some, you know, high velocity interaction. And it's easier to do that in person. But I don't see a world where everybody's back in the office five days a week as a result of that. If you just look at that expressed preference, it's just like nobody's going to rush towards that when most people want to be there kind of two, three days a week. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe I was just thinking maybe the uh, maybe the move is actually maybe the future is the other direction where cities are full of more art, more people who want to live in the city for the benefits of the city. And if you don't, if you're working a job that you're getting paid a lot of money that you would have had to have been in the city before, maybe that office space is converted into residential or some other form of entertainment value. And it's like cities don't have these empty buildings on the weekends that used to be business buildings during the week. Maybe there's just all entertainment, which would be, I mean, that's, that's even better, which, you know, clean, it's like COVID cleans out the cities from business buildings and then residential and entertainment can move in. I'm sure it'll be a mix, but it is interesting. Think about that. The concept of flex space. Now we're getting into a totally different thing. I, I, I always found having been a, a big consumer of say San Francisco real estate, both as a resident and as a, um, an office, um, uh, renting lots of office space. And I mean, office space in the like, lots of office space. <laughs> and you realize, wow, we're paying all this money for this office space that then sits empty over half the time, all night. And, and most weekends yeah. it's sitting empty. And so you see these huge buildings and this incredibly valuable real estate that are either are full at night, empty during the day, and then which are residential, and then empty all night and, and full during the day. And you're like, this makes absolutely no sense from a, from a sustainability and ecological point of view. The utilization is incredibly low on our real estate. And you look at a massive homeless population saying, I have nowhere to live. And you're like, oh, it's because we don't have enough housing because we leave half of the residents and half of the stuff empty half the time. You're like, hang on a second. <laughs> like, yeah. There's got to be a better way. But don't get me started on like the inefficiencies of real estate and how it's not designed for the users. Is this, is this going to be your next uh, project or your next interest? I'm sure at this point Why you're... Not? You're, you're still early. That one that we work. I think they've got they've got they've yeah. got a lot uh, between Airbnb and WeWork. I think there's a lot of interesting things uh, that are, that are possible there in terms of share, shared and flex space. I think that's going to be a big. There's a big future in shared and flex space, no doubt. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. I, <laughs> there was one startup I was working on a few years ago where we uh, it was called FlowTab. We had a, uh, a mobile drink ordering application, so people could go. We were in San Francisco. We had 13 bars, so we sold these bars on this tablet that they put behind the bar. And the bartender would see the drink order pop up. They'd press the button. They'd get paid automatically and people could come pick up the drink. And it was fun. We did that in 2012, 13. But we would go into these bars and all day long, they're empty. Like giant, you know, the huge, you know, 5,000 square foot places. They're all just empty all day long until like 7 p.m. And it's like, man, you could come up and set up a co-working space here and just pop it down, you know, as soon as the bar opens. Uh, I don't know if any of that ever took off, but it just, it was, it's always been on my mind as something you, certainly a business idea you could do. Um, just reacting on it. I remember living in New York. This was in um, early 2000s. I had the same reaction to bars and clothing stores, like high-end fashion. If you look at the layout, they're designed almost the same. They have a, a large counter with, um, point of sale sitting there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They've got wall display and a lot of open open space, tables, things that you can walk around. And the bars remain open all night and the, um, the fashion uh, retail remains open all day. Now there's a bunch of logistical problems with spilling drinks on, on garments and all this stuff that happens. When you look at it, you're like, wow, these incredibly similar spaces. Yeah. And, and, and to, your, to your point, to some degree, you know, coffee shops have figured out that. They, they've figured out that like, well, in the morning, you kind of have a big rush. And then in the afternoon, you have a rush, but in between, we can kind of be a co-working space mm. and that's okay. Um, and so I, I think you're onto something there. The, 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 the way we think about retail, the way we think about commercial office, and the way we think about residential in urban centers needs to pretty fundamentally change or has an opportunity to change pretty significantly now that a lot of people are going to be able to uh, be remote, and, but, but want to convene. 
And I think that there's going to be something really interesting there that, that we'll, we'll, we'll see emerging. I don't know what it's going to well, look we'll like. Have to, we'll, have to, we'll have to have you back on the show when you launch this new company. <laughs> um, uh, I, would, I would ask you one, one more thing and then we'll wrap up. Uh, do you feel, uh, tell me what's your, uh, what unique aspect of management do you deploy? What, what's unique in your leadership? Say, uh, you know, most, most CEOs will set up um, OKRs, they'll do quarterly meetings, um, you know, they'll have mission, vision statements. <clears throat> are there things that you have done or learned that you've um, implemented at Shift that are unique, things that are stuff that you've learned across the road that you've, uh, you find works for you? That's, that's a really good question, Mike. And in a weird way, I would say that what I learned at Shift was that highly unique management is not like this it is not the key what what is the most critical is solid good management mm. <laughs> and most of that is known can be done should be done never to be underestimated uh, but what what i don't know if it's unique to me but um big believer in the importance of core values that drive culture and i i, I can't it, it's one of those things where everybody comes out on the other side is like oh my gosh culture's the thing um, and, but it's this amorphous, difficult thing. And people go into it thinking culture is about like ping pong tables and foosball and drinks and free sushi. And that ain't what culture is about. Um, but the idea of being able to, as a leader, create clarity on what are the expected and encouraged behaviors and what are the discouraged behaviors and hold to that, not just through words, but building an executive team that can live to that. I think is the, the single most important thing you can do. Are there, is there, and, are, there um, are there structural ways to live to that? Like uh, meetings every month or week where you review or, or? This is the crazy thing. And this is the hard thing is um, one has a tendency to want to jump to designs to say, Hey, what is the design? What is the, what is the org structure? What is the meeting cadence? What is the information flow that will enable a positive culture? And the answer is, it's actually the behaviors of the leaders. The design doesn't inherently do it. You can have good or bad culture in any design. Um, what, what Some designs encourage more interaction and some designs encourage less interaction, but it really is about the in-the-moment, live, observed behavior of the leaders that everybody sees. Because it's, it's a classic thing like... Um, uh, I don't know. They say this with, 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 I think this is probably true with kids. I'm I have young kids. I'm thinking about this too. They, they say that your kids are going to do what you do, not what you say. You mm. can say it all day. They're going to watch what you do and they are going to mimic you. And so usually what I coach leaders is become self-aware of what you do because your teams are looking to you for guidance and they're going to do what you do, not what you say. So the worst thing you can possibly do is, you know, say one set of values, say one set of principles and then act the other, but developing that self-awareness of truly what, what it is that you and your exec team do. Um, and then understanding that that's going to be what, what, what's going to result in your culture, uh, real fast that happens. And so then being able to get clear on what are those things and be observing where is the exec team or where am I as the, as the leader, not behaving in line with what, with what I want to be the encouraged behaviors. Um, that, that is like the thing to be looking out for. And if you can build that into your design in your meeting structure, um, and you can create an open culture that allows people to like call that out and correct it. Really helpful. Uh, but those are those are facilitating tactics. The the core thing is being clear on what are the core values, and then how are you going to stick to those uh, you can, values, principles. There's a bunch of different ways that people articulate this stuff. And there's no there's no one silver bullet. But the point is actual substantive clarity on what's going to drive your behavior. Yeah, and, and that can be done with a lot of different ways. And because your behavior is going to get cascaded through the organization, I think a lot of early founders don't realize that. I think a lot of founders, particularly um, high energy visionary founders say, hey, I'm a high energy visionary founder. Uh, do as I say, not as I do. And that is a recipe for really, really bad execution. Yeah. It's because people are going to look at you and they're going to, they're going to want to mimic you because they're like, that's the person in charge. I want to be like them, uh, which is again, why diversity is so critical in our leadership, because we want everybody to be able to participate and look and be like, I can be like them. Uh, and that's a, that's a really, really critical aspect, uh, both in terms of uh, behavior and in terms of representation of, of the, the, the company you want. You mean it both in terms of how people physically look as well as how they behave? So I think of it as like you're, what I'm hearing is that there's a, there's a need to have a, a progression of um, interpersonal 
awareness. So, you know, I'm not triggered by something. If you're just like, Hey Mike, I got to get that report in by the end of the day. It's like, Toby, you're always so needy, you know, and, and you, that kind of behavior, that kind of, uh, uh, taking it personally or an irrational response to something would be not really a sustainable leadership quality, I would say. And, but that, that in and of itself is not, I think of characteristics as kind of a fine line between physical role models. So, you know, if you look at somebody and you kind of mimic their behavior, you can act as if act how they are acting. But then there's also, do I, if I'm trying to be in that leadership position or determine if I fit in on say an interview or a very short term basis, I see that, that latter case being the benefit of diversity, right? Because you don't, you don't tell me if you disagree, but I would imagine you don't want diversity on the uh, on the behavioral and cultural values, you know, you don't want some people, you know, right, yeah, yeah. D- being drastically different than others. You ca- you actually want very very little diversity. Uh, you want people to align sharply with the the values of the company. And you know, if you say you're going to do something, you do it. Whatever the important values are, you want yeah. Yeah, exactly. You want a diverse set of leaders adhering to the same set of values. Right. That's a simpler is, way to say it. The first population of uh, in your in your in your talent base in your in your in your team, company, customers, you name it. By definition, there's going to be a lot of great variation there, and so you want that variation represented in the leaders. But you, to your point, you you don't want a lot of variation in what the values are because that that creates confusion, and confusion is um, like just the, the death of a company. People spend a lot of time burning a lot of calories being confused and wondering. And uh, what you want is you want teams and clarity. And clarity involves starting with what are the core encouraged behaviors and how do we how do we go about living those, like actually taking action on those on a day-to-day basis. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, and, and again, to your, you asked a really good question, like what's the right design for meeting cadence and whatnot. And I can talk about some things we did at Shift that I thought made a lot of sense. We were in an e-commerce retail, move fast, innovate, act, act quickly. So we had, we had, you know, clear structures around daily standups. We had uh, weekly, weekly business reviews, monthly business reviews, uh, quarterly planning sessions. Like there's a bunch of good design and structure uh, that can be used. And we iterated to find that. I don't think there's one silver bullet. It depends on your business and your team in terms of how you want to structure that. Um, I've seen a lot of good stuff around the concept of, you know, Scrum and people coming together uh, on a regular basis, being able to communicate openly, clearly have, 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 have clarity around what expectations are and goals. And stuff. So there's like, there is some standard goodness there. But the thing that um, more than anything that I, I learned on this one, particularly in, the, in, in leading a, a teams that came from very different backgrounds with very different skill sets, was the importance of that unifying clarity um, and the importance of having um, clarity and mission, clarity and vision, but also clarity and values and that, that is articulated by the behaviors of the executive team. And that's one of the hardest things for a leader to stay on top of because you really get... Um, Th- get to thinking about the strategy, the technology, the the business, the competitors, all these things. But uh, you, you, one of the most important things, and probably the most important thing you can do, is ensure that you're cultivating a healthy culture. Yeah, uh, and, and that starts with clarity on what are the encouraged and discouraged behaviors, and having your executives and your leaders. Uh, because you don't have to be an executive to be a leader. You can be you know, leaders have or see, you can be a, you know a, a very um, well-respected engineer, the behaviors that that person is doing, what she does is what others are going to emulate. And so that that's what you want to be looking out for is um, enabling clarity on your for your leaders on what the encouraged behaviors are and then having other people see those and, um, and, and replicate them and build on them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, really good points. Where is Shift now on uh, size? Uh, you, you being public, is there a headcount you can reference or revenue or transit or something? What's the meaningful... So uh, that's a great question, Mike. I um, I don't know if we have published externally our current headcount numbers. And it's one of those things where when we went public, went through a lot of, um, call it like training with uh, with with our accountants and lawyers and SEC folks saying, hey, you like you can't share specific data about, um, you know, about uh, that you, you haven't shared universally. Oh, really? Okay. With yeah, it's like a big thing. Like you, have to, you can't have asymmetry of data. I can't share in one channel or one area. Uh, information or data or specific data that could that could predict it. So don't worry, I, um, I won't tell anybody. <laughs> we started out. Um, we we start. I'll, 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 I'll answer it in round terms. Um, we're, we've started out measured in the you know uh, a, a few dozen people. I think we had less than fifty employees when I when I um, 
uh, got got running with this thing, and I think now we're you know we're well north of a thousand um, and uh, and growing. So it's it's um, it's 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 gotten to be. And there's different stages. You know, one of the biggest I think and important um, milestones uh, I usually coach for companies, particularly at startups, is uh, the number 150. Mm. Like, there's a big change that happens when you go from uh, like 80 or 90 people to like 170. I don't know why, but somewhere in there, you get to the point where humans are no longer capable of knowing everybody. And there's a bunch of books written on this. Right? Really you know, it's like this thing. And so that's, that's a key, like, it's a key thought uh, of, of, and point where you begin saying, wow, you can no longer rely on um, just tribal knowledge and uh, interpersonal connections. You start having to really implement the things you were describing earlier, uh, meeting designs, uh, communication flows, um, clear connectivity, clarity and roles and responsibilities, et cetera. Because at that point, the informal networks uh, stop carrying you the way they did up until that point. And that's a hard thing for a leader when you're like, whoa, the thing that got us here can't get us there at the next level. And we have to start really thinking hard about design uh, or design and 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 how the company design in a way that we hadn't before, and so that that's the, that's that uh, that's part of the answer. Yeah, the yeah, like definitely. That. As, a, as a startup, as a growth company uh, leader, is right around that point. You got to make sure you're really thinking about your systems and processes because those are those are pretty critical. Are you going to be doing more coaching? Are you looking for other founders to coach as you take a step down? Or just That's take a great it. question. I, I, I jokingly say I, I've in my career so far have spent something like thirteen billion dollars making lots of different mistakes and having lots of challenges. I think it'd be a real shame to not share that with others. I'd love for other people to not make my mistakes, but make new ones. Um, so yeah, I, I imagine I'm going to be doing everything I can to to give back. I um I believe in a life. Uh, this, I got this from a, a good friend of mine years and years and years ago. Uh, life of learn, earn, and serve. Uh, you got to be able to learn, uh, absorb, and make sense of things. Go out, be able to earn, provide for your family, so that you're you're you know you're you're able to able to sustain uh, sustain your family and your community. But then go and give back and serve, and that can come in a lot of different ways. But I have found I, I do I do some coaching and some interaction with folks as best I can to to serve them, and I, and I go through sort of, sort of cycles on that thing in terms of. Uh, having bandwidth to do it. So yeah, I think I probably am uh, entering a bit of a service phase uh, here in, in some respect. Mike. Yeah. Well, you, that. you, uh, you deserve it. You earned it. Congrats on all the progress with, uh, with shift and I wish you all the best uh, of relaxation and enjoyment as you take a step down, man. It was really a joy to talk to you. I, I appreciate your time, Toby. Likewise. And I really believe in what you're doing here, getting folks to share stuff with others so people can get benefit from the things that, um, that, that people have experienced. It's a, it's, it's a noble enterprise and I appreciate you including me in it, Mike. Thank you, sir. Thank you for listening to Around the Coin. If you enjoyed the show today, consider giving us a quick review wherever you listen to podcasts, tweet about it or text it to a friend. We really appreciate all the support and growing that we can. If you have any guests you'd like us to bring on or feedback for us, don't hesitate to reach out. We would love to hear from you. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner.